You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn Church, J-Town. In Ecclesiastes, we discover that a life spent in pursuit of pleasure, achievement, and control will ultimately leave us empty-handed. Life isn't about what we can obtain, but about what we already have, and learning to receive it from God with gratitude. Welcome to Ecclesiastes, life as gift, not gain. We are coming close to the end of this book. Man, we've been working through this over the last several weeks and, and uh, this summer. And so we are in chapter 9, looking at verses 1 through 12. So if you're able, I encourage you to stand with me in honor of reading God's word. So hear the word of the Lord. Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. People do not know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices, the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so it is also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all living since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their, their hate, their envy have already disappeared and there's no longer a portion for them and all that is done under the sun. Man, such a encouraging words here this morning. Amen. <laughs> so, man, I, I've read this all week and just like as I'm reading, I'm going, man, wow, this is, this is really helpful. All right. Uh, it is. And we'll see here in a few minutes why it is, but it's just want to state the obvious. Verse seven, it gets a little better. Verse seven, go eat your bread with pleasure. And drink your wine with a cheerful heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength. Because there's no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows this time like a fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to you in love. Let's pray together. Yeah, Father, we, we do confess, man, sometimes um, uh, the word of God can be hard to hear and like sometimes a struggle even to receive. And so I just um, pray once again that we will see that The book of Ecclesiastes is your word to us, Lord. Yes, it is written by a human author, but it is your word. And may we be people that seek to understand, but not just understand, but live it out. May we be people to submit our lives to what you say to us. And Lord, may you 
Do your slow work in us and continue to change us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So as most of you know, I'm uh, the dad of four boys. And um, at times I, I try to be a little more intentional and in just trying to speak truth in their life, try to... Um, yeah, uh, have conversations obviously about Christ and spiritual things. And the difficulty that um, I play is that they see me with two different hats. Not that they hopefully don't experience me differently, but I do kind of wear the pastor hat and then I have a dad hat. And sometimes it's, it's, it's hard for them to discern the two in the sense of like, you know, are you just putting this, on, like, is this just what you're supposed to do because you're a pastor dad or do you really kind of live this? You know, it's, it's just sometimes hard to, you know, switch back and forth with that. And so, you know, you always kind of come up with ideas through reading books and listening to what other people are doing. And I think, I think it's Joseph, he was around nine or 10 years old. And, and you guys have probably have heard this illustration a million times before, but, you know, it's where the illustration of like, you know, you go to a, a, a you know, a graveyard and, and you go look at, you know, tombs and caskets, uh, not caskets, but, you know, the headstone, you don't really, there's not caskets out there. Like, he's like, well, that'd be really weird. That would be really interesting, actually. Uh, but, yeah, and you, you know, what kind of what's in a, I'll give you a picture here. This is not, a, you know, a headstone of anybody I know, but you go and here's what you consistently see. You see someone's name, you see the day of their birth and the, the day they died. And then what separates them too is like a little dash. And so the idea behind what I try to do with Joseph is like take him to the graveyard. And we did, we, we actually did this. I think it was Joseph. I don't know if it, it, may, it may have been Michael Bryan, but I'm pretty sure it was Joseph. And so you just walk through the graveyard and you try to have a conversation about like death. Like, I know you're 10 years old, but you're gonna die someday. And, and what really matters, you know, what's representation of your entire life is the little dash that separates when you were born and what you, when you die. And, you know, you're trying to get into a conversation of what do you want your dash to be about? What do you, how do you wanna live your life? And the reality here is that it, it didn't work. It, it was really awkward, you know. He didn't give a rip about any of this. He's just asking. I mean, not that he was trying to be disrespectful. He's a, a 10-year-old boy that was more concerned about, I don't know, the weeds that are growing up or, wow, look how cool this is. You know, it's like there was no thought to the dash. You know, it just, just didn't work. And, and honestly, full confession, most of those things never work with me anyways. And, and eventually becomes something they laugh about. I mean, just here recently, I remember Joseph saying something like, hey, you remember that time, Dad, we went to the graveyard and you tried to talk about life through the dash. That's just so, uh, and it's like, yeah, that, that just didn't work at all. But here's, here's the point. And I know most of you guys have probably heard that illustration before, but the reality is, is that that, that dash, someday there's gonna come a day when you will die and you'll have a headstone and whatever you have on there, what is gonna represent the very, you know, function of your whole life is just basically made up in one little line. And so the, the question I'm trying to answer today is not, uh, not necessarily, it is this, but it, it we'll get there, not necessarily for you to think about that right now. What, is, what do you want that dash to represent in your life? What do you want people to remember you for. That's a part of today. And I want you to think about that, but here's what I'm first wanting to do. How would the preacher of Ecclesiastes, what we've called him all throughout this series, the writer, the author of Ecclesiastes, how would he define and encourage you to define the dash? Or 
I've heard it said like this, and this is a quote that I've actually said to my boys quite a bit, and you probably have heard this quote also. Uh, Only one life will soon be passed. Anybody know this quote? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Now you see it, right? It's only what's done for Christ will last. Great quote, it is. Man, powerful quote. And, and, and part of what I, and I, this is true, I, I wholeheartedly believe this, but part of what I'm trying to do today too is like this kind of goes along with the dash part. What does it really look like, that second phrase there, what's done for Christ will last? What comes to your mind to give definition to that? What's done for Christ is what will last. What, what, what do you think of? What words come to your mind? And so what I'm first wanting to do is take that question and say, okay, what, what would the author of Ecclesiastes, how would he answer that question? Because just like I said in my prayer, sometimes we have a tendency to make like maybe the book of Ecclesiastes in italics. It's like the little asterisk. It's like, ah, not sure what's going on here. Not a lot of God talk because God never directly speaks in the book of Ecclesiastes, even though He's speaking because he's the one that's authoring this book, but there's no God said this in the book of Ecclesiastes. So sometimes our mind can go, I don't know really what to do with that. I'll just put an asterisk by Ecclesiastes. Well, I'm going to move the asterisk out and say, you know what? He's actually got something to say that gives definition to what our dash is to be about and what does it really look like? What's done for Christ is what will last. So hopefully you understand where I'm going because that's where we're, we're headed. But notice what he does here. I mean, this is, if you've been with us for a while as we've worked through this book and as we read Ecclesiastes chapter nine, hopefully you're going, I think this guy said this before, right? Because a lot of what we just read in verses one through 12, you, you've heard it before. And just like any good communicator or writer Whatever is important that you feel like you've got to make sure you get across, you're going to repeat it. And that's what he does here. He reminds us, the book ends here, you know, there's something in the middle we're going to go to, but the book ends are reminders of what we've heard over and over as we've worked through this book. He's given us two realities about life and he's reminding us again, and I'm going to bring out these really quickly. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because He's talked about these over and over. The first reality is the certainty of death. And we talked about it last week. And here he is again. They're like, dude, give me something else to talk about, right? It's what I'm kind of wanting. But once again, he's reminding us as human beings of the certainty of death. Look what he says here, starting in verse two. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous, the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean and the unclean, for the one who sacrifices, for the one who does not sacrifice, as it is for the good, so it is also for the sinner, as it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil, all that is done under the sun, and here is this point, there is one fate for everyone. And what is that fate? Well, we know what the fate is because of the verses one through six. When you look at the context there, he's talking about death. And what he's emphasizing here and kind of hitting on here is sort of the injustice of death or that death is not necessarily fair because death doesn't take into account how you lived. No matter how you live, whether you live as a righteous person or an unrighteous person, if you live like one who's 
taking oaths and following through with your oaths and whether you live like one who never does, you know, it doesn't matter. Death is your fate. All of us are going to die. And remember, like I said this last week, he's not trying to be depressing and morbid every time he's trying to remind us about our incoming death. All he's trying to do is do what most humanity doesn't do, is to make us think about the reality that we are going to die. Most of humanity, including me, do not give any thought to that reality, nor do we kind of adjust our lives in the reality that death is on its way. In fact, if we're kind of honest with ourselves, it, it's not a, a function of our own heart. It, it isn't an operational function of our life to really, really give thought that I'm going to die soon. And so the writer of Ecclesiastes is over and over and over saying, you are going to die. I mean, I shared this with you guys several weeks ago when we talked about death, all right? So I love that I'm reminding you guys of things that we often forget. Uh, I told you about a, an article that Tim Keller wrote in The Atlantic called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. Uh, and if you don't know this, just quickly here, um, last year, right before all the shutdowns happened in COVID, he got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And if you know anything about pancreatic cancer, it's, it's not good, you know, usually lifespan two to three years. And so it's interesting in that article, and if you haven't read it, I'd encourage you to go look it up. It's a really, really good article, and it, and it carries a lot of the message that uh, chapter 9 has here, as well as a whole of Ecclesiastes, as far as like, what does it mean to live in light of your incoming death? But it's interesting, when the doctor told him that he had pancreatic cancer, realizing the kind of death sentence that is, this is what he said. Here's a quote, right? What? No. I can't die. That happens to others. But not to me. And when I said these outrageous words out loud, I realized that this delusion had been actual operating principle of my own heart. And this is not something new in the 21st century. In the article, he goes on and quotes an older theologian within the 16th century, and he says this, we undertake all things as if we were establishing immortality for ourselves on earth. If we see a dead body, we may philosophize briefly about the fleeting nature of life, but the moment we turn away from the sight, the thought of our own, and I'll give you definitions of trying to say this word. I've practiced it all week, but when you come up here, it just like leaves you. You're just talking about you, your, your idea of you're gonna last forever is what the meaning of that word. Remains fixed in our minds. Death is an abstraction to us. Something technically true, but unimaginable as a personal reality. And the preacher will not allow us to keep death as an abstraction over and over and over. He is reminding us of the certainty of your death. That's the first reality. See that in verses one through six, go all the way toward the end in verses 11 and 12. He reminds us again of a second reality about life that he's talked about over and over. And that is the uncertainty of life. So there is a certainty that you're going to die, but in the midst of all life, 
occurrences and circumstances, there's a ton of uncertainty. That's what he's getting after, starting in verse 11, when he says, again, I saw under the sun that the race was not for the swift or the battle to the strong or the bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happens to them all. Yes, normally, generally speaking, nine times out of 10, the race is faster, is for the faster runner, right? The battle is always nine times out of 10, won by the strongest. Food comes to the wise, wealth comes to those who are brilliant, but time and chance happens to every single one of us. And we will see this played out as all of us, well, maybe not all of us, as some of us sit and watch the Olympics over the next two weeks, right? Who we think's gonna win probably won't win. Something will happen. They may wake up and have COVID and they can't compete. I mean, that's the kind of the reality that we all get. If there's so much uncertainty that there, there's, there's situations arise, circumstances change, unforeseen events occur, things that are completely out of our control. Yes, generally speaking, this is not how it's going to happen, but there's a ton of uncertainty. I mean, talked about it. My language has been over the course of this series is formulaic living. Like it just doesn't work. It, it, you can't control, always control outcomes. He goes on in, in verse 12 and says, certainly no one knows this time. Like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on him. And all of us in this room and know exactly what the writer is talking about here is that we've all known people or we have been individuals who've experienced the phone call, the diagnosis, you know, whatever it is that's completely turned your world upside down and you never, ever saw it coming. A couple of quotes here. As one writer says, we tend to live our lives as if the one thing that is certain, which is death, will never come, while the many things that are uncertain are certain. And as David Gibson says in his Living Life Backer, which is a really, really helpful book, been super helpful for me in this series, listen to what he says. And pertaining to this, these verses here, 11 through 12, and the uncertainty of life. As we grow up, we replace our childhood dreams of being a ballerina or a firefighter with hopes of an apprenticeship or a degree and a job and a husband or wife and children and a house in a certain part of town with a big dining room where people can come and go and laugh, eat and talk together. You might simply long to grow old happily with your family and grandchildren around you. Ecclesiastes says, maybe, maybe you will do all these things or maybe you will be dead before the year ends. Maybe you'll never get that job. Maybe you'll get married and have kids, but never the house you want. Can you see what the preacher is saying to us? Put your faith in something else that is not under the sun because one event under the sun might change all your best laid plans. For man does not know his time. So look, I don't need to harp on this over and over. This is what, We've been talking about for nine weeks now. He's reminding us of these two realities, the certainty of your death and the uncertainty of life. And so what I'm trying to ask here, and I think the writer gives us this answer. So when I've got both of these at play, these kind of tensions I've got to live with, the certainty of my coming death and the uncertainty of not even knowing when that's going to happen. Like I... Like, I want to live wisely and I can, in some extent, control that, but at the same time, I cannot, right? 
so then how am I to live with these kind of two realities in play? This, this certainty of my death and all the uncertainty of life, how am I to live? Or just like we said at the beginning, what's my dash to be about? If, if the writer of Ecclesiastes was here today, what would he fill in the blank of saying, what is done for Christ will last? What, what would he say there? What would, what would be his like, well, this is what I would say in answer to you. What, do you, what, would, he, what would he give to us? Well, Look how he answers that. It's right in the middle of this passage in verses 7 through 10. Go. That's a change. Show that in just a minute. Go. Eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with chill for heart. For God has already accepted your works. Let your clothes be white all the time. Never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. Do you hear him saying once again what he has already said in this book? And I would sum it up like this. How would he say Live your, your dash. How would he give definition to what's, what you do for Christ will last? This is what he would say. Enjoy your life. And I, I mean, maybe I'm speculating. I don't know. But I'm kind of speaking out of my own experience. I don't know if any of us in this room, that word or that phrase would have been in our category if I was said, hey, what what does it really mean to do things for Christ? If you had to define what your dash was gonna be about, would this, this idea even come into your mind? Enjoy your life. I mean, this is the fifth time he said this. It's like, I think he's trying to get something across, right? Chapter two, verse 24, here it is again. There's nothing better for a person than to what? Eat, drink, and enjoy his work. I have seen that even this is from God's hand in case we still didn't get it. Chapter three, verse 12, I know that there's nothing better for them than to what? Rejoice and enjoy the good life. It is also the gift of God whenever one eats, drinks, and enjoys all of his efforts. Again, repeats himself. Chapter three, verse 22. I have seen that there's nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because this is his reward. If that's not enough, again, chapter five, verses 18 and 19. Here's what I've said that I've seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. Furthermore, everyone to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also allowed him to enjoy them, take his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. And then we see it again here in chapter nine, but there's a little bit of a difference. There's a little nuance here. Instead of giving just kind of advice and counsel, now here in verse seven, he says, go. That's an imperative. Go take action here. Enjoy the life 
that God has given you to live. And I'm going to walk through each of these gifts that he's laid out here. The first one is in verse 7. Go, eat your bread with pleasure and drink and your wine with cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your work. He's speaking here of everyday food and drink. And he's not just talking about what we're to do, but how we're to eat and drink. We're to do it with, with joyfulness, with gratefulness, because these are gifts from God, as well as he also gives us the reason why we should do this is because God expects it of you. God intends you to enjoy his gifts that he's given to you. That's what he said here. God has already accepted your work. Some translation says approved of what you do. Other translation says God's favor for what you do. So when we enjoy God's gifts, we are experiencing the very favor of God. Now, obviously, guys, we are not talking about indulging in his gifts. This is not like a license to go and sin and do whatever you want to, you know, it's like, Hallelujah. Oh, blah, blah. No, we, we look at this in the, in the context of the whole of the story of the Bible. I mean, God has clearly given us what we should be engaged in and what we should not be engaged in, not to kill your joy, but to maximize your joy, right? Are, are you following me? So this is not like indulging in sinful activity. That's not what he's getting after. And we're not talking about worshiping his gifts. Because anytime we take any of his gifts and we make that the center of our being, we begin to destroy it. Now you get that, right? Your spouse is not to be what you revolve your life around or your kids or your job or your hobby, whatever it is. When you do that, you begin destroying the gift. No, he's talking about enjoying it, enjoying what God has given to us. We enjoy them. And I said this before and I will continually say this because I do think this is a, a part of me and a part of what the message of the Bible is. Like the way that we enjoy God. I am all for enjoyment of God. But the means by which we do that, not the only, but a big part of it, is that we enjoy the gifts that he's given to us. And I've said this a million times. Look, guys, look, it does not honor the giver that when you've been given a gift, that you set that gift aside and said, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna put anything in my way of loving you, all right? Thank you for the gift, but I'm fearful of idolatry. So I'm gonna show you by rejecting your gift and putting my focus completely and fully on you. Like that doesn't honor the giver. If you're a dad here, if you're a mom here, if you have nieces or nephews, like, like what gives you joy is when you give the gift and that person enjoys the gift. That makes you smile. Look, no parent, no parent goes to Disney World for themselves. Maybe some, right? Just talking to Zach about this this week. No parent does that. Why do you go to Disney World? Because you want to see the joy that happens in your child when they experience the wonder of Disney World. You don't stand in an hour-long line holding your 50-pound child and you're sweating profusely because you just love it. Oh, this is so much joy. Hallelujah, let's do this again, right? No, you do this because you know the joy that your child's gonna experience and it brings joy in you. Look, guys, look, look. We enjoy God, through enjoying his gifts, eat, we drink, 
Beautiful stuff here. It continues on in verse 8. Let your clothes be white all the time. What in the world is he talking about, white clothes? What's well, part of it is comfortable living because this is in a hot climate in this time. And we know this, that, you know, it reflects heat, does not absorb it. So, yeah, never let oil be lacking on your head. Oil is a way of protecting and nourishing your skin in a very dry climate in this time. And at the same time, white clothes and oil for the skin were worn to show joy and happiness. He goes on in verse 9, enjoy life with your wife or, or with your spouse. You love all the days of your fleeting life. We're not told to just live with our spouse. We're not just told to put up with our spouse, but we're encouraged and commanded through the very words of God to enjoy life with them. That's why and I, look, I'm not saying that this is the answer to all marriage problems. But one of the things I talk about when I sit down with couples that are struggling is like, tell me what you do together. What's your life like together? Not separately, but what do you do together? And part of what I'm asking is like, are, are you enjoying life together? That's why I ask, you know, are you... Are you Doing a date night. I'm not saying a date night is the, the answer to all marriage problems at all. And I'm not saying we need to do this in a legalistic way and stretch the man. But, but there is a place where, man, make sure you're engaging in activities where you learn to enjoy one another and you're doing stuff together that brings joy to both of you. And it's interesting when you're doing that on a consistent basis, you're able to bring up things that are really hard to hear in sometimes those moments, right? It doesn't make it real easy, but it's really helpful. One writer says it like this, if you do not enjoy each other, then it's likely, not always, that's why he says likely, that you are simply taking what you can from each other to pursue other goals and ambitions that are never going to give you all that they promise. You may use each other to gain something that will turn out not to be gained and lose each other in the process. Enjoy life with the wife you love. And lastly, verse 10, he says, whatever your hand is fine to do, do it with all your strength. And he says, whatever your hand's fine, he's talking about what, what is available to you, what's within your own capacity and your ability and whatever that is, do it well. Do your work, do your job well. Abbreviation, how am I to fill in this dash? What really matters for Christ? Part of that, not the only thing, part of it is enjoy your life. The list that he's given to us is not in any stretch of the imagination, an exhaustive list of all of God's gifts for us to enjoy. But rather, it is a list that represents what it looks like to love life and to enjoy it. These things are ways of saying that when God made the world, he said over and over, and you guys know this in Genesis chapter one, he said it was good and no amount of you being a Christian or being spiritual will ever change the reality that God puts you in a physical world with hands and food and drink and culture and relationships and beauty. Yes, sin has came and messed all this up. It's distorted it. It's 
that's created us. It's caused us not being able to understand all that's going on in our, in our life. And we get frustrated about that. But sin, listen, it's so important, but sin does not uncreate everything. And as one writer shares with us, here's maybe even a, an expanded list on verses 7 through 10. And I got it up here on the quote here. Ride a bike. See the Grand Canyon. Go to the theater. Learn to make music. Visit the sick. Care for the dying. Cook a meal. Feed the hungry. Watch a film. Read a book. Laugh with some friends until it makes you cry. And I didn't add it to the quote, but I added to my quote. Laugh so hard to where you pee a little bit. Amen? And when you pee a little bit, you've really laughed. I've been there, gone to some places and watched some comedians and said, man, that's a good show. I peed a little bit. Amen. Go on. Play football. Run a marathon. Snorkel in the ocean. Listen to Mozart. Ring your parents. Write a letter. Play with your kids. Spend your money. Learn a language. Plan a church. Start a school. Speak about Jesus. Travel to somewhere where you've never been. Adopt a child. Give away your future. And then some, or your fortune. That's your future, right? Got to read my words here. Your, your fortune and then some. Shape someone else's life by laying down your own. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is trying to get after it here when he talks about enjoying life. It's and I, and I get it, guys. Like, I'm not sure if you're feeling this way. I don't know how you're feeling because I can't go around and find out. But when i like, working on this all week, here's what's going on in me. It's like, I don't know. This feels really selfish. This feels so, like, ungodly, so to speak. This feels um, just not very sacrificial, and so look, and, and, and even, I mean, maybe you're thinking this because this is there too. It's like, this just kind of feels void of Jesus. And so we got to remind ourselves of a few things, right? Yes, Ecclesiastes does not say Jesus at all in the book. Not one time. And we got to remember that we understand the larger story that the writer of Ecclesiastes did not know. The human writer did not know. We understand the larger story of this. So yes, for sure, we as followers of Jesus Christ living in the larger story need to take our understanding of the work that Jesus has done and done for us and the call he's given onto our lives in order to kind of read what's going on here. But I would also put before you the writer, even though he doesn't fully know what he's saying, I think he's giving hints to Jesus when he says, God is the one who's enabling you to enjoy this gift because you don't have the Holy Spirit's power to enjoy the gifts that, you, that he's given to you. Then guess what you're gonna do with them? That's not a trick question. You will worship them. They will become the center of your life. They will become what is ultimate to you and you will destroy that gift. And so I... Even though the, the writer doesn't know, but the Holy Spirit does, the only way that we are enabled to enjoy his gifts and not worship them is through being in a relationship with God that Jesus gives us. That's the lens by which we come and look at this. And then at the same time, and the writer of Ecclesiastes didn't have this either, we also have God in the flesh coming and living. And you're going, how did he live? What did he do in his short, fleeting life? Someone that knew about his death and told his disciples often, I'm going to die really soon. No, you're not. We're going to live forever. Da, da, da. Now, you know what I'm saying? Like over and over, I'm, I'm going to die. This is why I'm here. This is where I'm headed. So how did Jesus live his life? 
Luke 7. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Boy, that sounds really familiar. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Jesus lived with a, with a mission. Jesus lived with the reality of death in front of him in the midst of all the uncertainty of life. He healed, he preached, he did ministry, he helped the poor, he loved and cared for people. His life was full of giving himself and sacrificial living. And, big capital letters in my notes here, and he ate. He feasted. I mean, if someone's calling you a glutton, they must have been seeing you eat a lot. Or at least in a mist where it's, it's a feast. He drank. He didn't get drunk. He never sinned, never once. But he enjoyed what God had given to him. He went to weddings. A wedding isn't like what we do, two-hour event or an hour event on a Saturday or Sunday. And this time it was a week-long feast. And we know this. And John, his first miracle was turning water into wine. And yes, it was from water to wine. For those of us like me that grew up hearing a different story around that. He spent time in homes, eating, drinking, telling stories, laughing, enjoying his brief life. And that, look guys, that represented, so to speak, the dash of Jesus' life. Not, not all of it, right? Because there are times for us to deny ourselves so we can take up our cross and follow him. There are times when we say no to things because we have a greater vision and cause we're after, but it's never void of enjoying the life that he's given us. I remember um, this Ace of Heart, he came to me several years ago when I don't think he'd be fine with me sharing this. This is not in my notes. So maybe I'll make some changes for the 11 because that's the one we record. But I think he's fine with me sharing this. This is like public stuff. He was just kind of uh, interviewing for a youth minister position. This was several years ago. And he was just kind of running through his kind of philosophical approach to ministry. And he said, hey, what, what do you think? Is there anything you would add? Is anything you would change? And a lot of it was really, really good. Most of it was really good. And the one question I asked him is like, where's joy? Like, all this sounds really awesome, man. I mean it. Like, this is really great. But where does joy fit in to your philosophical approach to student ministry? I think it's got to have a place. Because <laughs> I do think it's a part of living in the kingdom of God. One of the things we talk about with our boys and we probably don't do this as much as we need to, honestly. So 
a lot of reflecting on my parenting as my two oldest are getting older and especially my oldest being out of the house and stuff. But I just remember a good friend of ours, and actually it's a counselor that really helped Kathy and I through a very difficult period of time in our life. It's just us navigating all this parenting stuff. And one of the things that was just so freeing, um, and at the same time kind of challenging, uh, he just said, look, don't, don't worry about all the um, kind of these, the lists that we make that we got to be doing if we're going to be really good parents. He said, just give them a vision of what it looks like to live with God in his kingdom. And part of that vision is how they see you and Kathy, he's talking to me, how you see you and your wife, Kathy, enjoying life, enjoying one another. He said, that's giving them a vision of what life looks like under the reign and rule of God. Not the only vision, but a part of it. So let me ask you, is this a part of your framework? What a life well lived with God and for God. Is this in your mind and heart? Would you have answered the question at the very beginning with something about enjoying life? Or would that not even been on your radar? Why? Do you see your enjoyment of life as some kind of break from how God really wants you to live? Or do you see it as a part of what God would define as life with him through his son, Jesus? Let's pray. So as we do each week, I just want to give us a moment to be still, quiet. Maybe you need to take a few breaths and just be sensitive to what the Spirit may be saying to you this morning. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took a loaf of bread like this and he broke it and said, this is my body which has been broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of him. And then he took a cup of wine like this and said, this is the blood of the new covenant which has been shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of him. So each time we gather together and when we eat this bread and we drink this cup together, we're announcing the death of Christ until he returns. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash jtown.